Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 17. We meditate on this passage of scripture tonight as we prepare to come to the table. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let's attend to its reading. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. God is faithful. He is faithful. We'll consider three ways in which God is faithful tonight. He's faithful in instruction. In other words, he he leaves us with enough for us to know what he would have us know for this life. Uh, He is faithful in instructing us in his ways of righteousness. He is faithful during temptation. During temptation. And that's most of what Paul is leading us to in this passage. And then finally, he is faithful in provision. He he is faithful in giving us, providing us with exactly that which we need. Faithful in instruction, temptation, during temptation, and in provision. There's a famous set of resources. It's called The Great Books. The longer title, I think, is The Great Books of the Western World or Western Civilization. It's an indexed compilation of resources. It's several volumes, I think around 
20 volumes or so, of a vast amount of resources that have shaped the Western mind over the last number of centuries. This was a 20th century project. Shortly after it came out, the editor was asked why was by far the largest of all of the subjects in this this compilation of volumes, why the largest subject was God, the subject of God without hesitating at all, almost as if this editor had asked himself that same question, he said this, because more consequences for life and action follow from the affirmation or denial of God than from any other basic question. And the interviewer stayed silent and just nodded in agreement. Think about his response. More consequences for life and action come from whether or not you affirm the existence of God. It's wonderfully put. And that question comes before us tonight, perhaps in a little bit of a different form. As we gather for worship, most of us are united in our affirmation of God, but the question comes before us tonight, are we living in action as though we deny his existence? Does God exist? Of course, But since he does, what does that tell us about life? What does that tell us about our lives? It tells us that to live for yourself, to live for the advancement of your glory and the advancement of your name or your power or pleasure, it's not only futile, but it is the the pinnacle of folly. If God makes us, then he makes us for himself. And the call upon us is to live in light of how we have been made, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The table of the Lord is very obviously a place of God's blessing, his blessing towards us and his provision for us. But it also says something about us. It marks us out in a sense. It says that we give ourselves to the God who gave himself for us. As we come to the table sharing in union and communion with God and with each other, that is something that we are proclaiming, that we give ourselves to the God who gives us all that we need. Because of that, we we are not to live in ways that show communion with the many false gods of our day. So we understand that as we feast here, we are strengthened to say no to the other false banquets that take place in our world, those that are set before us. And we are called to live in devotion to our king and live out our devotion to him in our lives. God is faithful in instruction unto this end. It's fascinating to see in this passage of 1 Corinthians 10 that Paul sees such a direct line of connection between the Corinthian church and the people of Israel. Corinth, of course, would have been a church mostly of Gentiles, but Paul says they have Israel as their spiritual fathers. Right? Wonderful affirmation of the covenantal unity of God's people between the Testaments. Even beyond that, he says that Israel participated in the true spiritual realities of Jesus even before the time of Christ. They were baptized and they drank from the realities of Christ in their wilderness testing. They drank from the rock, as Paul says, and the rock was Christ. So Paul tells the Corinthians that they are to look to Israel and learn to see them 
as an example. Was the example good or was it bad? Largely a bad example. That they might learn what not to do. What was it that the Israelites continually were falling into? That Paul uses to warn uh, the Corinthians. It was a lifestyle that was completely contradictory to the profession they had made of God. When they swore allegiance to him. Verse 7 shows us this hypocrisy. They ate and drank the spiritual food that God had given to them. And that was the sign of their belonging to him and the sign of God's providing for them. And they rose up to give themselves to a false idol, to God, uh, to a false God. So they eat and drink from God because of God, uh, marking themselves out as his people. They rise up and give themselves up to idolatry. This is the double-mindedness of a husband who comes home to a house that his wife cleaned cleaned for him, to a table that is set with a meal prepared for him, and he partakes of all that provision as one of the benefits of the marriage that he has committed himself to, but meanwhile, he's running around with other women while his wife stays at home. He takes what he can get from his marriage, but apparently his vows mean nothing to him. Israel's double-mindedness was a gross contradiction, but the example was perfect for Paul to use. Because the Corinthians were set in the middle of a culture that was pulling them in all kinds of different directions in terms of worship. Rome was a place that was overrun with all kinds of different religions, different ceremonies, and different temples of worship. And the pressure of the surrounding culture was to see some measure of merit in all of them. Look at all of these different religions. Uh, Take and choose. Pick what you really want. But the ultimate thing is that you just don't give yourself fully an allegiance to one that would preclude all of the others. We kind of have this melting pot of gods, melting pot of religions. This was something that the Roman government really wanted and they encouraged that a lot. Adopt a new people, adopt their gods, adopt their ceremonies, kind of mix it in with everything else. Why did they want that to be the case? Because Rome wanted the ultimate allegiance to be to their kingdom. You can mix in a lot of religious truth, but they wanted people to say, we have no king but Caesar. So the Corinthian church was faced with this challenge of coming together as those marked as the people of Christ, called to live in absolute devotion to him. But their culture pressured them to compromise on a lot of those things in daily life. Live as a Roman citizen, go to this temple or that temple, participate in this feast or that feast, honor this idol or that. Show yourself to be a good citizen of Rome and concerned for the good of Rome. So Paul says, do you see the contradiction inherent in the lives of the Israelites? Do you see what they did in the desert and how wrong that was? Sitting down to receive what God gives to them and then rising up to give themselves to something else. Paul says, flee, flee that idolatry. Flee that idolatry. No matter the pressures around you, flee that idolatry. The sin of idolatry was connected also to the sin of testing that Paul talks about in verse 9. To test the Lord is to sin intentionally to see what God will do. It is to presume upon the grace of God because he's promised to forgive you. And so you assume that you can just take advantage of that promise and keep taking advantage of it. To presume upon the grace of God. Paul points out 
how absurd this is later on in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 22, he says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? In other words, Paul is saying, if you think that the promise of forgiveness allows you to live as though God does not exist, you're fooling yourself if you think that you can trick him. He says, do not presume upon the grace of God. We are not stronger than he is. The gospel of grace is for who? It's for humbled sinners. It's for those who see the, des- the desperate need that they have for redemption and for the grace of God. So Paul instructs the Corinthians, says, learn from Israel. Look at the people of Israel. Look at their faults, their mistakes, their idolatry, their testing of the Lord, and learn from them. Our culture uh, presents us with many of the same challenges, doesn't it? Some of the same challenges that the Corinthians would be facing are some of the ones that we face in our lives. Many in the world today say that to give yourself in total allegiance to Christ puts you in a camp of intolerance because your first concern ought to be to the betterment, the advancement of general tolerance in this world. And so to stand upon the exclusive claims of Christ and to say that Jesus was true when he said all of those things and to give ourselves in total allegiance to Christ, that makes us, in a sense, intolerant. People will say that we must give ourselves to cultural projects that unite us. All of that can be good in some sense. But ultimately, Christ says, your ultimate allegiance is to me. We're called to be good neighbors. We're called to be good citizens. We're called to work for the common good and to be those who look not only and look out not only for ourselves but for others. The Bible, uh, in many cases, are, will call us to live in complete devotion to Christ, and that means oftentimes that we will run into opposition. And when that happens, our ultimate allegiance is to our Lord. So Paul warns us of these things. Perhaps you wonder how a warning like this can fit in with a reformed idea of, of salvation. Uh, why, is there, why is there a warning if God is sovereign in salvation, if I'm predestined to salvation, if nothing can snatch me out of the loving care of my Heavenly Father? Why do I need to be warned to flee things like idolatry and testing the Lord and presumptuous sins? Well, God uses means to preserve us in salvation. He is a God of means. For instance, the canons of Dort say this, just as it has pleased God to work grace in us, so he preserves, continues, and completes his work by the hearing of the gospel, by meditation on it, by exhortations, threats, promises, and also by the use of sacraments. God is a God of means. He uses things to preserve faith in us. One of the things is the sacraments, gathering around the table. That's how he renews and nourishes our faith in us. God also that uses the means of warning us and saying this is dangerous to give yourself in allegiance to something else. It's dangerous to, to fall into the sin of idolatry just like Israel did. God is faithful in instructing us into those ways so that he would preserve us. God is also faithful in uh, enduring temptation. This is what Paul points out in verses 12 and 13. He is faithful during times of temptation. Have you ever felt that the temptations you face are unique? That no one else gets tempted in the way that you do? No one else has to show the kinds of resistance and fortitude that you have to show on a routine basis? Paul says, don't be fooled into thinking that way. He also says, don't be fooled into thinking that you stand on your own. 
Because when you begin to think that you are standing on your own and you don't need the Lord, you don't need your brothers and sisters in Christ, that is when you are likely to fall. As I mentioned this morning, there's no self-made men, right? That would be nonsense. We stand in Christ. We stand in Christ. We stand in him. He is our strength, our righteousness, and our salvation. So we do not stand on our own. No one is tempted in ways that have not been seen before. This was a problem for Corinth. Corinth was looking at their their cultural situation and they're saying this kind of situation has never existed before. You know, it was a, a city where there were a lot of different things happening, a lot of moving parts, a lot of different kinds of people. And Corinth was saying uh, that the, the church in Corinth was saying that No one has ever been faced with this kind of situation. And because of that, they figured that they could compromise morally on certain things because God had never asked other people to do something similar. So Corinth, uh, those in Corinth, were compromising. Thinking there's never been this kind of idolatrous culture in which God's people have had to live. We can see how many people today would feel the same way. That Christians have never been called to live in the midst of a culture like today with everything changing and so much uncertainty and so much opportunity to, to go off into different kinds of sin. And think about how that could eat away at you and, and over time you begin to think that you may be justified in making a compromise here or a compromise there. But your temptations are not new, whatever they are. And God always calls us to faithfulness, and no temptation has overtaken you which is not common to man. There is no temptation that has not been seen before. And when temptation comes upon us, God is the one who provides the way out. The Lord will see to it. So, God is faithful during temptation. Finally, he is faithful in provision. God wants all of us. He wants all of us. We participate in this table as a way to proclaim that we participate in his life-giving salvation and how foolish it would be for us to gather around this table and then rise up and leave and go indulge in idolatry, to give ourselves to another that beckons us away from Christ. But that highlights the last reason we remind ourselves we are here. Because in order to be strengthened for that battle, we need to feast on God's grace. We need to feast on Christ as the food for our weary souls. It's not an easy task to each and every day set out to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's not easy to trust and to obey, to give thanks in all circumstances, to be faithful at all times to God's word. It's for this reason that the writer of Hebrews tells us, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and mercy in our time of need. One pastor puts it this way, we need strength and forgiveness. Those are exactly the things that God provides for us in Christ. All who come to God through this high priest find grace in their time of need. And so so Paul teaches us these two very important points to understand as we come around the table. When we come to the table, we are giving ourselves in allegiance to the one who deserves our worship and our praise and our very lives. The one to whom we offer a sacrifice of praise. And also at this same table, we are given the strength that we need to live out that allegiance and our commitment to God. 
to the living God of grace. So it is Christ who bears us up and strengthens us in times of temptation. It is Christ who nourishes our souls for the battle of life. How foolish it would be to profess Christ, to come around proclaiming allegiance to him, and then to get up and live like you know him not. But in like manner, how foolish it would be to think that you can live in allegiance to Jesus without the help that he gives to you without the help that he gives to you in his word, without the help that he gives to you here at the table. Communion is medicine for sin-sick souls. Come and feast on Christ. Come to the table of grace. Come find mercy for your time of need. It is here that you can see and touch and taste the faithfulness that God has shown to us. God is faithful Christ is sufficient for all of our needs. Just as God commands us to flee idolatry, so he strengthens us to obey that command. He gives us the strength to obey. The Lord of heaven showers us with the bread of life. Praise God for his wonderful provision. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we gather, bless this time for your honor and for your glory through Christ the new and living way. Amen. If you would take the form 